Once a year, <clears throat> you have the hard work of trying to figure out how to compete with this. It's only once a year, but uh, if, if I catch you, like, focusing over here, I just might call you out. We'll see. I told someone last week that I'm glad it's only once a year because I'm not all that interesting. And when there's a lot of other things to look at, it uh, competes for attention in a dangerous way. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, as you can see by looking behind me, it is uh, the beginning of VBS. And it is also Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Our message today, however, will neither be on VBS nor Father's Day. It's on unity in the church. So we're going to be reading the first uh, 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, we join together this Sunday morning and we worship you. We call to mind who you are, that you are indeed infinite and holy and our creator. You're all powerful, and righteous. And we praise you that you are also merciful and gracious. We praise you for your grace towards us, most of all for your grace towards us in Christ. We rejoice that in him we have the forgiveness of sins 
In Him we have redemption. In Him we have peace with you. So we praise you for Jesus. We praise you that you have called us to be your own and you have done so in a body. That we get to be part of a church. We're not saved to be uh, redeemed somewhere alone, but you have called us together. And so we praise you for the body of Christ of which we get to be members. I pray this morning that your word would strike us in our hearts and our minds, that you, by your spirit, would speak to us through your word this morning, even on this topic of unity within the body. So we ask for your blessing and your help. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been preaching through Romans for some time now, and uh, in Romans chapter 14 and 15, we ran across some sections in there that raise questions about unity within the church. In those chapters uh, was discussed topics of <clears throat> whether we should eat meat that potentially had been sacrificed to idols or that for sure had been sacrificed to idols, or whether we should set that aside and, and no longer eat meat because of that potential taint and instead just eat vegetables and, and thus uh, remain as far removed from any connection with idolatry or anything like that as possible. And within the Roman church, there were different factions. There were groups that thought one way and groups that thought another way. And, and the same thing with wine, whether they should avoid it because of the potential connection with idolatry or, or whether it was okay and they had the freedom to, uh, to consume that. Those are real questions, and those are real issues that strike right down to uh, our own practices and the things we value, the things that we love. And, uh, and so you can imagine being in a church like that that's made up of differences of opinion on things like that, that there might be great difficulty and friction within the body there. And really, that is the case. Uh, there are um, issues that can cause that kind of friction and and, and potential even division within the body of Christ, within, within the church. And so we want to uh, look at this passage today and how we can understand unity within the body. How are we to relate to people who have different convictions on some of these areas? Maybe different practices when it comes to some of these things like the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. How can there be unity in the presence of such differences? And so that brings us to our passage today. And uh, this passage in Ephesians chapter 4 we have preached on before. But typically when we preach on it, when I've preached on it, I, I've tended to preach on what has come later and the gifting and things like that. But today I want to look at the whole paragraph, all of 1 through 16, and see that whole context to see what it says about unity within the body. And so, first of all, we see in verses 1, 2, and 3, there's an appeal for unity. There's an appeal for unity. And first of all, that unity is consistent with the calling. He says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That word worthy has the idea of walking consistently with your calling, that your walk reflects your calling. Your walk is consistent with it. It's not different from it. Well, what is that calling? I want to note, first of all, the second word, at least in the ESV, in, in verse 1, is therefore. And if you 
If you will remember in your Bible study, when you see the word therefore, you've got to ask the question, what's it there for, right? Or as Bob Burroughs, Burroughs always said, wherefore the wherefore, right? Because it's a transition word. It's a word that's reflecting on something. It, it, it means something beyond its immediate uh, context of this one verse. It points to something that came before. It's a conclusion that is drawn on what came before. And so we have to go back and we have to think about what chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians we're talking about. And uh, we don't want to be here all morning, so I want to do this very briefly. But uh, we will see in Ephesians, very uh, consistent, very similar to the way it was in Romans, there is a section in Paul's teaching where he, he teaches doctrine for the first, here it's the first half of the book. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 are thoroughly doctrinal. He's teaching doctrine. He's teaching us truth, how to understand the gospel. It's similar when it comes to the book of Romans. In Romans, he starts in chapter 1, and it's doctrine all the way through. There's, there's consistent doctrine until you get to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, you have the therefore, right? And so after the therefore comes the application, therefore what this doctrine means in our life. Okay, Well, we're looking in chapter uh, 4 and verse 1 of Ephesians at this very verse where that transition is made. And so he's saying, in light of all of this doctrinal teaching, in light of all the things that we've said, I'm going to draw some conclusions. So for us, since we've not been going through the book of Ephesians and it's not fresh maybe in all of our minds, we want to go back and just review very quickly what he's been talking about. In chapter 1, he uh, really dives into what are these blessings, these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And again, I'm not going, going to detail them all, but he says that, that God chose us in Christ, that He predestined us for adoption as sons. He says that in Christ we have redemption through His blood. We have obtained an inheritance because of Christ. What Christ has done gives us an inheritance and that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So if I could summarize that very, very quickly, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the blessings that are ours by the work of God in the gospel so that we have these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And he transitions into chapter 2 there, and he, <clears throat> he talks thoroughly about what it means that we are saved by grace. It is by grace that you are saved. He says in chapter 2, we were spiritually dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us with Him. God seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. He saved us by grace through faith, and He gave us good works to walk in. God has been at work by His grace, redeeming us from that place of being spiritually dead, making us alive and even giving us a life to walk in as those who are alive by His grace. Starting in verse 11 in chapter 2, he talks about the fact that this has implications for how Jews and Gentiles relate to one another. The church he's writing to and the world he lived in, there was a significant Jewish population that the gospel had gone to primarily first. And so there were all kinds of Jewish Christians 
And they lived in a Gentile world, and so the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Well, when you bring these two groups together into the same church that for so long have been hostile to one another, or at least have been separate from one another and happy with being separate from one another, well, now in the gospel they're being brought together. And so Paul addresses this topic of Jews and Gentiles being united in Christ. He says, you Gentiles were far off, but now you've been brought near. You were on the outside, Gentiles, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, that this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been removed, it's been broken down, and thus there is peace between these two people for the first time. We have both been reconciled to God in one body through the cross, and we have access in one spirit to the Father, that we who were separate are now together. We have peace together. We have peace with God together. We have access to the Father by the same means that we are fellow citizens, members together of the household of God. And together, being built into, we've actually become a fitting dwelling place for God, what the New Testament calls the temple of God, the church. So very different people groups, very different backgrounds have been brought together, have been made a fitting dwelling place for God. And so he concludes chapter 2 in that way, and then he moves into chapter 3 to talk about the mystery of the gospel. And the mystery here in the New Testament, mystery doesn't mean something that's confusing or or just hidden or something like that. Mystery means something that, that was maybe evident in tiny, tiny ways in the Old Testament, but it was mostly concealed, but now in the New Testament has come to the forefront. And here the mystery is that Gentiles are brought in also. The Jew and Gentile alike are members of the kingdom. And so this mystery of the gospel is that fact that we have been brought in together, that the eternal plan of God was to bring in the Gentiles so that with Jew and Gentile together, He might put on display His magnificent saving wisdom. So God has been at work to this in bringing Jew and Gentile together, saving them alike, and putting on display by those means the the glory of God, His wisdom, His salvation, and putting that on display. And so that's chapter 3. So that's a summary, a very quick summary of that doctrinal teaching of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And it's in light of that in chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, therefore, in light of all that stuff, I'm about to make some observations. I'm about to draw some conclusions. In light of this gracious working of God in saving people, he's going to make some conclusions. The the Christian's identity, the very base of the Christian's identity is that he has received the saving work of God through no merit of his own purely by the gracious work of God, which has been shown without distinction to Jew and Gentile alike. He's been saved by grace. He's been made by the Holy Spirit into a suitable dwelling place for God. And now Paul appeals for us to live in a way that is consistent with that fact, consistent with where we came from, consistent with what our base identity is. And so he wants us to live in a way consistent with that. And he's going to develop in the next three chapters what that means in various aspects of life. What does it mean to live consistent with 
our base identity, what God has done in us, and what He's going to talk about here, He wants to emphasize us bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. He says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. Why does He have to say that? Well, you've heard the verse before from Proverbs 27, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. When you rub two pieces of metal together, you get friction. And where there's friction, there's heat. And that's what happens when we rub up with with one another. That's what happens when you put Jew and Gentile like into the same church. That's what happens when you put people of such different backgrounds as we have here together, is there can be friction. There can be heat. And so He encourages us, He exhorts us, bear with one another, be patient, be loving, be kind with one another, be tender, bear with one another. So He wants us to focus on that aspect of bearing with one another. But then look at verse 3, where He talks about the unity of the Spirit. Bearing with one another in love, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There has been peace established between Jew and Gentile. There has been peace established between us as people, as Christians, and God because of what God has done. Because of salvation, we have peace. There has been peace established that He has formed Jew and Gentile alike into one people, And together, those people are being fitted into a suitable dwelling place for God. There is peace that's established. It's been established by the work of God, by His Spirit, to accomplish that peace. The base identity of what it means to be a Christian is that we have been redeemed by God's work. We've been brought into a place of peace with God because of Christ. We've been brought into a place of peace with one another, where there is no longer distinction We are together. We are one people. We have been brought together. That's the bond of peace. That peace has been established between us. And he says here, maintain that peace. Maintain that unity. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Did you notice he says maintain? He doesn't say achieve that unity. He doesn't say build that unity. He doesn't say, do the things required so that you can have or construct that unity. He says, maintain it. Well, what what do you maintain? You maintain something you already have. And that's his point here, is that in the gospel, there is unity between believers. There is this, this baseline truth of who we are, and according to that truth, every single Christian has that unity that God has saved us by His grace, made us His own. And in that, we have peace. And so here in verse 3, He insists that we ought to bear with one another and be eager to maintain the unity. So we have it. There's a sense in which we already have unity that all Christians, all genuine Christians have this unity. It's the gospel. It's what it means to be saved, and every Christian has that. But to better understand what is meant by this concept of, uh, of unity, 
that he says to maintain, we need to look at what the nature of this unity is. The nature of this unity, first of all, it comes from the one triune God. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. First thing I want to observe is that there is one triune God behind this unity. You have mention of the Spirit, you have mention of the Lord, which is a reference to the Son, and the God and Father of us all, right? So we have a reference here to the triune God. The unity we have exists because God has made it happen. God has made it happen. The entirety of the Godhead, the entirety of the triune God has been at work to accomplish salvation. You have the Father who has a people that He's determined to save. He sends the Son to do that. And the Son comes, He completes the work of redemption for all those that the Father has given Him. And then the Holy Spirit draws those to Himself, and He applies that redemption so that they are saved. And then He takes up residence within them to work in us the transformation of our lives, to work in us what we call sanctification. So we have the triune God who's behind this. That's a, the first aspect, the nature of this trinity that we want to look at. The, the nature of this unity that we have is the triune God. Secondly, we want to recognize that it comes from one saving gospel. He says one hope, one faith, one baptism. He's talking about the gospel. There is one gospel that saves everyone who is saved. There's not one gospel for these over here and a different gospel for these over here. There's not one gospel for the Jew and one gospel for the Gentile. There is one gospel, one saving gospel, one hope. He said, once we had no hope and we were without God in the world, but now we've been called to a rich and immeasurable hope in Christ. We have a hope, and that one hope is in Christ. He says, he says one baptism which is not a reference, by the way, to water baptism. It's not a reference to the mode of baptism, whether we sprinkle, whether we dunk, or the way we do baptism. It's a reference to the one into whom we are baptized, meaning Christ, when we are baptized into Christ. This afternoon, if you have some time on your hands and you want to read this, go to Ephesians chapter 1 and see just how many times reference is made there in just that one chapter to the blessings that are ours in Christ. The blessings that are ours in Him, because we've been baptized into Him, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6. By faith in Christ, we are placed within Him, and thus we get what He deserves. We get the rewards for what He has done. We get the blessings, the benefits of what it means to be in Christ. There is one saving gospel, and then thirdly, one Christian body. It says at the beginning of verse 4, there is one body, not two, not the Jewish body and the Gentile body. There's one body, the body of Christ, that we are all saved into, that as Christians we are all placed into this one body. So there is only one body. There's not a distinction. And by the way, this reference 
to one body as, a, as an illustration that Paul uses elsewhere. He uses it in Romans, he uses it in 1 Corinthians to talk about the fact that we are all one body and we are members of one another. And what's interesting about that is that we, we are a body that is organically connected, not like, a, not like the body of Frankenstein's monster that had, you know, an arm from over here sewn on, and then there's a hand from something else attached, and then fingers from over here so that it looks like a patchwork. No, the body of Christ is grown together. We are organically connected. We are members of one another. Just like your fingers are organically connected to your hand, organically connected to your wrist and your arm, all one body with many parts, and that's the example he uses often. But here we are one body, organically grown, organically connected, not a patchwork. So the nature of this unity that we have with one another is that we have one triune God who has redeemed us by means of the one saving gospel, and He has formed us into one organic Christian body of believers. And now we are to preserve that unity by the means that God has given us. Now, again, I've taught on this several times. Uh, I had someone come up to me the last time I taught on this, and they said, oh, you taught on this back in this year and this date and this year and this date. Someone wrote down the dates, which wasn't fair at all uh, <laughs> to call me out like that. But uh, so I, I just want to observe a couple of things in verses 7 through 12 here, familiar passage um, just a couple of things I want to observe in this. First of all, there is one giver of the gifts, right? God is, God is preserving this unity that we have, and He does so by means of one giver, that is Christ Himself. Christ is the one who descended from glory, took on human form, obeyed in our place, obeyed the law, was righteous in all of His conduct, fulfilling the law, and then died on the cross, not for His sin, but for your sin, for my sin, stood in our place, received the wrath of God, poured upon Him for my sin. He was buried, He was raised, and then He ascended. And when He ascended, this is what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, preaching on the same topic. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus, the conquering one who has accomplished redemption, who is now back at the Father's side, having, having descended to the lower parts, that is the earth, He's now ascended and having done so, He has all the spoils to give out. He has all of these blessings. He has he has all of these gifts to give to men, to give to His children for the preservation of this unity that we have, for the growth, the expansion, the work of the church to carry on the work of God. Jesus has given us the spoils to be able to do that. He's given us the gifts to be able to do that. In the context of this passage, He's talking about the one giver who gives those gifts for the purpose of preserving the unity that we were all born into, the unity of the gospel that we are to maintain. How is He going to do that? Well, He gives gifts. So there's one giver, but there are differing gifts that He gives. He doesn't, he doesn't equip us all equally. 
And in other passages in the New Testament, you can read about the various spiritual gifting, and, and some have this kind of gift of mercy, and others have this kind of gift of giving, and, and others have the kind of gift of teaching, and other things like that. But in this passage, he's talking about specifically certain offices within the church or certain functions within the church. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He gave these functions or these people. Here the discussion is not about types of gifting like the ability to teach or, or have great compassion on other people or other types of spiritual gifting, evangelism or whatnot. Here he's talking about specifically a type of ministry, a type of minister, really. And if you'll notice what all of these are, they are all ministers of the Word, bringing the Word to people. It's the ministry of Bible teaching, whether it's evangelism, that's a form of Bible teaching because you are teaching from the Bible, here's how you can be saved, here's your plight if you're not saved, all the way from the apostles and the prophets, which was a once-for-all, given-and-done thing, where the Word of God, the New Testament, comes to us, and you have evangelists who bring the Word of God to the lost, and then you've got pastors and teachers, or pastor-teachers, it's seems like they might be one person, those who minister the Word, those who teach the Word of God to the people of God. He says, these are the gifts I'm talking about. These are the gifts that God has given for the purpose of preserving the unity that is ours because of the gospel. So there's one giver, but there are differing gifts. And then he chooses to focus here on those gifts of those who bring the Word of God to us. But there is one goal body growth. There is one bowl, a goal, body growth. He said, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What's the goal? What's the purpose of this gifting that he's focusing on here? It's to build up the body. It's to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That's one thing to notice right off the bat that the work of ministry is not done by the paid minister guy. The work of ministry is done by the congregation. It's done by the Christians. All the Christians are doing the ministry. And that ministry might be, you know, compassionate uh, care for someone who's in the hospital. Or maybe it's someone who um, just got out of the hospital and they can't mow their lawn, so you mow their lawn. Or it might be just encouraging with the Word with one another. It might be teaching a Sunday school class. It might be evangelism and sharing the gospel. It might be taking someone else out and teaching them how to do evangelism. It might be financially supporting someone within the congregation who's in a place of need. It might be counseling with someone who's going through difficult times. It might be just directing someone to Christ in your, in your connect group. Ministry is all of those things. Those are the ways we minister, and the ministry of the Word here is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry so that the whole congregation ends up doing the work of ministry. That's the first thing to notice, is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry for the building up the body of Christ. When that happens, when that kind of ministry happens, you have a health within the body. You have a multiplication of efforts within the body. So that it's not just one guy running to minister to everybody, 
but it's everyone ministering to everyone, ministering to the people in your circle, the people around you whose needs you know of, whose needs you can meet. So you step in and meet that need. That need is met. God is glorified. That person is built up. The body of Christ is strengthened. And so there's a, there's a strong goal here he has of body growth, and the way it is done is by the saints being equipped to do that work of ministry. And that's a part of what the, 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 the gifts that he's talking about here are given for, the, the word ministers are given for that purpose. And finally, we come to the perfection of this unity. In verse, verses 13 through 16, we have the perfection of this unity. Look at verse 13. He says, we're to do that, we're to minister in those ways, to equip the saints, to do the work of ministry, to grow the body until, verse 13, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, now, I'm confused. Until we all attain to the unity. We said back in verse 3 that we were to maintain a unity. And I said that that unity back in verse 3 is something that already exists. And now we say in verse 13, we're to do something, we're to proceed and grow until we attain to a unity. It sounds like this unity in verse 13 is something out there, something remaining to be grasped. So when I said earlier that, that uh, you know, in verse 3 he says maintain the unity, and that, that doesn't mean accomplish or achieve or build that unity. And now in verse 13 he says we are indeed to attain to that unity. So what's going on? How are we to understand Paul to use the same term in, in uh, ways that sound different within this very same paragraph? How are we to understand that? Well, we need to reflect back on what the unity was that was in verse 3. The unity that existed, the unity that was purchased for us and into which we are all born as Christians is the unity of faith in the gospel. It's, it's the unity of what... God has accomplished on our behalf, that we have peace with God through Christ. Because of that, we have peace with one another through Christ. That's a unity into which we are born when we are reborn, when we are born again, when we have faith in Christ, when we enter in, we enter into that unity, and that is a unity that exists for every Christian. But now, he's talking about a unity that we work Towards, there's a unity that we are to attain to. There's a unity that's, that's yet to be grasped. So how do we understand what that unity means? Well, he said, this ministry of the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers is to continue so that the body grows as members are equipped to do the work of ministry and the body grows and the body ministers to itself and grows and gets stronger, as we do that, we are moving towards a unity, a kind of unity. So the question really is, what is this unity that we're heading towards? What, what unity are we making progress in seeking for? We are working towards, we are moving towards a particular unity in this passage. What is that? Well, these two unities are not actually entirely different. 
The first unity, the gospel that we are saved into, that every single Christian saved has that unity, is something that is to grow. It's like an acorn. Everything is there, but it needs to be matured, and it needs to grow, and as it does so, it turns into the oak tree. It is to grow. And what he's saying here in this passage is we have a unity that we were saved into, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and now through the ministry of the Word, we are to grow and progress. We are continue to continue to learn, and as we do so, a new unity is formed, but it's a, a unity of maturity. Whereas this is the unity that someone is saved into, in a sense, it's, a, it's an immature unity. Not that there's anything wrong with being immature. When you have a child, the child's immature. That's not an indictment. That's just a description of a young child. But when you have a young child, that child grows and becomes more mature and starts learning to crawl and learning to walk and learning to tie his own shoes and learning to, to, to play baseball and learning to become a man. There's growth and maturity that happens there. And that's kind of what he is talking about here. There was nothing lacking, per se, in that little baby that's born. Everything's there, all the fingers and toes, all the... Everything's there. But if he stayed that way, where would our world be? When you have a child, you rejoice that you have this new child. I saw, I saw some pictures of babies, the other, videos of babies the other day, and I thought, oh, I just love when our kids were just little babies, you know? Of course, you don't sleep for six or eight weeks. And that was easier in my 20s than it was in my 40s, I'll tell you that. You know, on one hand, you love it when they're cute and adorable, and you can hold them right here, they're not going to run off and do anything wrong, <laughs> get themselves into trouble. But on the other hand, that's not why we have babies. And that's not what babies are supposed to do. They're supposed to grow. They're supposed to mature. They're supposed to move forward. And so that's what he's talking about here is, by the ministry of the Word, when you have these Word ministers who are teaching the Bible who are explaining more and more in depth what this gospel means for more and more aspects of your life, there becomes greater and greater maturity. So is there anything wrong with a new believer having new believer faith, a new believer understanding of the gospel? There's zero wrong with that. Just like it's zero th wrong with a little baby who's, you know, eight pounds and in a tiny little diaper and, and about this big, can't even hold his head up. There's nothing wrong with that. But that baby is not supposed to stay that way. Nor is that new believer's faith to remain in that state of immaturity, but is to grow. And that growth happens by the teaching of the Word, by the teaching of the Bible. As we study the gospel further, as we understand more deeply what it means for our lives, God grows us. And we move into a greater unity around the teaching of God's Word and what God's Word means. So I've said several times, there's nothing wrong with, with being immature. If you're, if you're young, if you're young in the faith, there's nothing wrong with that. But there are certain dangers that come with immaturity. That's point B here, the dangers of immaturity. Look what he says in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
The danger of immaturity that Paul has in mind here that spells out for us is a susceptibility to doctrinal error, to believe things that are not true, to be blown about by every wind and wave. Without consistent and solid teaching from the Bible, without good doctrine, we are like children. We, children are, are, are wonderful. I have children. Today's Father's Day. I'm celebrating the fact that I have children. I love children, right? There are some, some things that are true, particularly about small children, that they need to grow out of. They're gullible, right? How many times have you stolen your child's nose, okay? There's a little bit of gullibility going on. There. I'm not even very good at that trick, right? And it still worked, right? So there, there is a degree of gullibility there. They're very, very impressionable, very impressionable, and they're vulnerable. We protect them. We care for them because they can't do that for themselves. And the danger of immaturity, spiritual immaturity, is that we remain in that condition, not grown up, remain immature. We, we are left open to be drawn into every wind of doctrine that comes along. After all, the enemy appears as an angel of light. So we're vulnerable. Immaturity makes us vulnerable. And particularly, he points out here, to doctrinal error, susceptible to every wind of doctrine, to human cunning, to people who would trick us, to ideas that would trick us. And we're vulnerable to those things without solid Bible teaching. The solution to dangerous and bad doctrine is robust, sound doctrine. But even here, even here, Paul has a caution for us because the solution is not bare truth. The solution is loving truth. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. The solution, if, if the problem is immaturity, if, the, if what that leaves us vulnerable to is, is bad doctrine, dangerous, destructive doctrine, well, the, surely the solution is the truth, right? Teach the truth. Teach sound doctrine instead. Well, yes, that's true. The truth in itself is a good thing. We want to know and we want to believe what is true. We certainly don't want to know and believe lies. We want to believe and know what is true. It's not good, it's not honoring to God for us to believe things that are not so, but truth can be delivered in such a way that it can have an unnecessarily clinical edge, or it can be cold, or it can be vindictive. And so it must be a loving truth. We are to speak the truth in love. That's why bedside manner is such an important thing for a doctor. If you've got a doctor who's got lousy bedside manner, he may tell you the truth. You still don't want to see him. You still don't want him to come to your room. Well, not that guy again. <laughs> he's going to make me cry by the way he talks to me or, or the, uh, his harsh tone or he's cold and distant or whatever. Bedside manner is important. So the truth must be there, but it needs to be accompanied by love. There needs to be bedside manner as we speak the truth to one another. However... Desiring to show only love by itself 
is dangerous also. Typically, when we think of love, we think of desiring good things for other people, and that usually means desiring not to do things that would cause the other person pain. When you love someone, you don't want to cause them pain, right? Going back to our doctor illustration, a doctor who has the best bedside manner in the world wins awards for it as people love him because of his bedside manner, but if he won't tell you what's wrong with you, if he won't tell you the truth about your medical situation, is he a good doctor? He may be a great friend. He may be a great counselor or something else, I don't know. But he's not doing his duty as a doctor if he won't give you your diagnosis, if he won't talk to you about your medical situation, though he's the kindest, gentlest person in the world, if he won't speak the truth about your situation, he's not doing his duty. He's not a good doctor. So you can't have some version of love by itself either. Paul says we are to speak the truth in love to one another. The way we are to grow up into Christ is as we speak the, love, the, the truth in love to one another. And in the context of this passage, that means speaking doctrinal truth in love to one another. And as we do that, as we, as we direct one another to the truth of Scripture, as we, as we tease out more and more what the gospel means for various aspects of our lives, just like we did in Sunday school this morning, as we talked about my own self-righteousness in all kinds of ways, the answer to that is the gospel. Understanding that my self-righteousness has been paid for. My false righteousness, my pride that goes with it, my, my desire to put other people down so that I look better, or, or even my own bringing God lower so that I can look better in His standard, or whatever I've done, it's been paid for in Christ. That, that I stand before God in Christ, holy and pleasing to Him, despite my self-righteousness. And I come to realize, not only do I have forgiveness with God and His righteousness credit, credited to me, I, I, I come to realize I don't need to struggle for those things, whether it's that recognition by you or whether it's that good feeling before God or whatever, because in Christ, I have every spiritual blessing already so I don't need to clamor for it. So as we look at the gospel, which was that thing that, that unified us when we were first saved, that that gospel is, is our unity and we are to maintain that. But as we look at our lives and as we think about what the gospel means in these different ways, as we work to understand the gospel and how it works, how God actually saves people and remains righteous, we grow and we mature and we grow in unity like that acorn growing into the oak tree. That gospel is being developed. The gospel hasn't changed. We're just realizing what it means in our lives in different aspects. And we grow and we mature, and our doctrine is developed. Our doctrine is kept strong, and thus, as we do that, we as a congregation grow. We as a, the people of God grow. We are equipped to do the work of ministry. We are equipped to serve one another. As a congregation, we grow and we mature, and as we mature, we leave behind that immaturity that left us susceptible to every wind of doctrine, to the things that would come and cut us off at the knees, to the lies that the enemy would believe. With a smiling face, he would have us believe these lies. And so the solution here may be 
counterintuitive. Because sometimes the difficulty that we have is where we disagree on what this says. Or we disagree with one another on what the Bible says about something. But the solution for us is to look deeper into what it says about that topic because therein lies unity. Ignoring it, brushing it aside, talking only about other things, being unwilling to address these issues, that's not unity. That's facade. And so the first point of application for us is that on issues like eating meat or vegetables, on issues like uh, the freedoms that we have in Christ and how to exercise them, on, on issues like that that have to do with behavior in my own conscience, let's look into the Word together, see what the Word says about those things. And on issues that are doctrinal, on issues where you and I disagree about, about what this says about a particular topic, let's look into God's Word and see what it says about that topic. Because therein lies unity. To ignore it, to set it aside, is not unity. And so I, I rejoice in the fact, and do so often, that, you know, Bible is our middle name. Because we're going to find the solution here. The solution on whether we can or can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. The solution on different doctrinal questions. What does the gospel mean in my life in this area or that area? The answer is found in here. Or more difficult doctrinal questions, what does the Bible mean when it says this? The answer is found in here. Therein lies unity. We dare not seek it somewhere else. So it is, it is Father's Day, and I do remember that. Uh, so dads, all right? Dads, application for you. Teach your children. Just like that little baby, you remember when your child was little? unable to fend for himself or herself, unable to sleep through the night, apparently, <laughs> unable, to, uh, unable to leave you alone because, you know, they, they needed the diaper changed or something like that. The, the child is to mature and to grow. You know, you, you haven't accomplished all of your parental duties when your child can, can tie his own shoes, put his own jacket on on the way out the door, right? Uh, particularly as Christian parents, particularly as Christian fathers, our task our God-given responsibility and opportunity is to lead our kids to know Christ also, to teach them Scripture so that they know who Jesus is, they know how to believe in Jesus, they know how to walk with Jesus, that they understand the gospel and how it applies in various aspects of life. So dads, teach your children. Now, none of us is a perfect teacher. Uh, no, no dad is the perfect teacher. And so we fumble and we understand some things and we don't understand some things and we have our own sin issues that we deal with, not just ignorance at times, but, but sin that we deal with. But God has given you the opportunity, dads, to teach your children, to lead them to Christ the best you can. You don't have to be the preacher and you don't have to be the, the Bible study leader and you don't have to be any of those things, but you are the dad. And that's the role that God has called you to. And you have the privilege of investing in your children so that they know Christ. What a blessing. Just jump in. You might not know how to do it at first. That's okay. You'll learn. It's not a big deal. This is your child. No one loves this child like you do. So teach 
your own children. We asked in the beginning how Christians with differing personal convictions can be unified with one another. That's not an easy thing. If it were an easy thing, Paul wouldn't have to write about it so much. If it were an easy thing, Paul wouldn't have to remind us, oh, by the way, bear with one another in love, with patience, kindness towards one another. If it were easy, he wouldn't have to say those things. It's not easy. But the solution is to seek together what the Bible teaches and to do so with love in our hearts toward one another. If we don't pursue sound biblical teaching, we make ourselves susceptible to false teaching, to dangerous doctrinal error. We don't have discernment if we don't know what is good and solid biblical teaching. When we have personal differences of conviction, we need to look more deeply into what the Word of God says, not, not avoid that issue, not, not ignore it, not set it aside. It was common practice when we were in Russia, fortunately we never had this happen with us personally, but we heard the story very often, that when a doctor had a patient who, uh, whom he diagnosed with a, maybe a terminal illness, a very, very dangerous illness, if the doctor was convinced that he might not get over it, the doctor might not even tell the patient or the patient's family that he had it. He would tell him he was fine. You'll get over it and send him home so that he could die with his family. What a disservice. What a disservice. I'm not, I'm not putting down Russian culture, but that, that the, the value of, of not frightening the person was so high when in my mind I'm thinking, I want to know. I want to know so I can make the most of the remainder of my time with my family. I want to know so that maybe there's a, fi- a way I can find a way around it, but even if I can't find a way around it, I want to enjoy, I, I want to know and experience to the fullest my last time with my family. That's not the kind of doctor that God is. And this is not the kind of doctor He's called us to be as we minister, as we care for one another. We are indeed to be loving, and we are indeed to be thoughtful to one another, but we also understand that the news must be delivered, and it must be believed. And in this case, it's the good news of the gospel that we get to deliver. And it must be understood, it must be delivered, and it must be believed. It's loving for us to give that good news but we must also be careful of our bedside manner that it assist in the delivery of the truth and not get in the way of the delivery of the truth so that I might be speaking something that's absolutely true and you don't even want to hear it because I'm a jerk about it, because I'm cold and distant about it. I need to speak the truth and you need to speak the truth. We need to do so in love. As we do that, God works in such a way within the body of Christ he, he, he has designed and set up the church in such a way. He has gifted the church in this way so that as it functions that way, as the Bible is taught, as the Bible is studied, the saints are equipped to do the work of ministry. They build the body of Christ up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ.
And that's what we want. That's what I want. And so let's continue to look into God's Word and seek unity here. And look here for how He would have us be unified and around what He would have us be unified. And as we disagree along the way and as we wrestle and as we, as we try to figure this out together, let's be loving to one another and speak the truth in love and move forward, pressing into Scripture and what it would teach us on these topics. Because I want to see the body of Christ grow in unity. I want to see Parkside grow in unity, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. I want to see Parkside grow more and more to, uh, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we would be virtually impervious to false doctrine, that we'd be, we'd be impervious to, to, the, to the winds that would come, to the, the lies, the deception. That's my desire that we would grow in that way. I, I, I want to be like that. And I desire that we would be the same, and I know that's the elder's desire as well. So how can we be unified? How can we have unity when, when, there's, when there's disagreement on, on practices and even on doctrine? There's unity as we seek the truth of Scripture together. And that's my commitment to you, that we do that together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you've given us your word. We have our own opinions, and they are many. Sometimes they are well-informed, and sometimes they are ill-informed. Father, we praise you that we are not governed by our opinions. We are not governed by the best thoughts we can have about you or towards you or about any other topics. We have your word. It speaks truth. It is reliable, and our task is to understand what it says. Father, we are grateful that you have given ministers of the Word to us. The, the fact that your Word comes to us in our own language, in our own time, in a way we can read, we can have it explained to us, we can discuss it together, we have free access to it. Father, I pray that you would be at work in our congregation that we would be seeking that unity, not, not uniformity with one another, but unity as we seek the truth of Your Word. So we ask that You would speak to us. We ask that even as we go into this week and the opportunity that we have for VBS to minister the gospel to children, we, we have the opportunity to see children enter into that unity that's theirs in the gospel, that, that is true of all who believe the gospel. I pray that you would help us as we get to minister in that way, and I do pray that you would save children, that you would draw them to yourself, that, that uh, there would be uh, those who trust in you even in the next few days. I pray even for the parents who will be coming, who will be uh, participating in the, in the parents' discussions uh, or just otherwise uh, getting information or talking to us uh, before and after the time. I pray that, that we would long to see people trust Christ, that we would bring the gospel to them, we would share as best we can, that you would do your work and that you would save sinners. Father, we humble ourselves and we submit ourselves to you and ask that you would work in our lives today and this week, ask that you would work in our lives and our VBS this week. We give you glory, we praise you that you save sinners like me. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless you all. If you want to pray with, uh, with someone,